the Corporate Pilot Guys podcast is about to begin. Your hosts are Tim and Rob, two corporate pilots and former flight instructors with over 13,000 combined flight hours. Aviation on both sides of the border will be discussed. Tim is from the United States and Rob is from Canada. In this episode, they'll talk about corporate pilots, cabin comforts, and the work vehicles, the corporate jets they fly. Welcome back to the Corporate Pilot Guys podcast. Today, we're going to be discussing some details on the aircraft that we both fly for a living. So what have you been up to, Tim? I have been flying a lot lately. And this last week, I have flown approximately 20 hours. I did a coast-to-coast trip. That's pretty much it. One thing I noticed on that coast-to-coast trip, we flew over the Great Salt Lake. I remember in years past, the thing was just full of water. But this time, flying over it, from 40,000 feet, you look down and think, where in the world did all the water go? It's just, it's dried up a lot. And I've actually been, you got me curious about the cause of it and everything and what's going on. I've been researching a little bit and actually the water level has gone up, but it's still very low. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And surprisingly enough, one thing that they're worried about with it getting too low, the dirt at the bottom of the lake that's dried up, some of it has hazardous uh, or toxic chemicals in it like arsenic and other stuff oh wow. and if it dries out and the wind starts blowing you can get toxic dust and that's really really bad for the people downwind of it and that's actually happened in california there was a lake that dried up because of man-made reasons they they diverted uh sources going into the lake and there were toxic minerals well the wind blew the dust that was toxic and caused a lot of issues downwind of of the lake wow so, not to get it all environmental, but that's just one thing I noticed is just how low that lake is and to see it that low in, in our lifetimes is pretty unreal. So that's one thing I've seen from the air uh, just this past week. That's very cool. You know, as a, a busy corporate pilot, um, you know, you get to see a lot of cool things across the country, um, you know. And you you fly over them repeatedly, and you know one of the things I do fly over is the Salt Lake, and uh, it's it's a very beautiful area. Absolutely, it's it's very unique, and, and depending which way you're going, I know there's different colors and that kind of thing to check out. And obviously, the the Salt Lake Flats are very very incredible to see. Um, I did a flight very recently from Vancouver to San Diego. Um, really really beautiful flight. One of the First times that I've seen almost no clouds all the way from Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, all the way down to San Diego. So I got to see things like, and as you know, I'm a total ab nerd. I was looking for Beale Air Force Base, where the U-2s are now and the the SR-71 used to be. Uh, Sacramento, uh, got to see the, the, the Bay Bridge in San Francisco, and then our arrival into san diego on the comics to arrival and if anybody gets to check that out is very cool comics to our uh, arnav arrival is uh, actually featuring all the marvel characters uh, so it's it's a pretty cool thing and then on arrival into there i got to see the famous miramar base and it is full of some kind of airplanes down there i'm guessing f-35 c's or something like that and then uh a really beautiful arrival onto um, into San Diego, and and an absolutely beautiful departure out of there with the zoo departure. So lots of flying for me recently, and uh, yeah, 
it's it's been pretty awesome, Tim. Who's our sponsor today? Well, we don't really have a sponsor, Tim, but I guess we have uh, we do have an aviation market update by Ryan McGill of McGill Aviation. Right. And if anybody doesn't know who he is, he is on TikTok, but more importantly, he is an aircraft broker who's very in tune with the aviation market of buying and selling airplanes. And we don't have a sponsor. I knew that before I asked, but it would be cool to have one. And we would love to have a sponsor from a coffee company. We love coffee. Pilots love coffee. The most important piece of equipment in an airplane is not the engines. It's a good coffee maker. Absolutely. So if you are a coffee producer somewhere around the world and you want to take it upon yourself and sponsor the Corporate Pilot Guys podcast, then we are your guys. Right. And we want to drink your coffee. And we're We're really very cheap, not because pilots are cheap, but because it would just be cool. I would even a bag of coffee would be okay, but I would settle for a K cup sent to me by a sponsor at this point in time. (laughs) For sure. Yeah. So moving on to corporate airplanes, you and I are both corporate pilots. I've been flying corporate for coming up on the start of my 19th year Mm. and you've been flying corporate and you did airline stuff before that. How long have you been, how long have you been flying professionally? I started back in 2000 and, uh, you know, at that time it was kind of a weird time in aviation. Um, you know, the, the, you know, we're getting over what happened in 9-11 and Mm -hmm. there was just a lot of different things that were going on, but just to give you an idea, we've talked about this before at that time to become an airline pilot, just to walk in the door and become a pilot with that particular company, they wanted 5,000 hours. Yeah, that was, was the exact number I had in my head. Yes. Yeah, so and that, that wasn't, that's not just Canada. That was United States also. And they yeah. were very picky back then. It was 5,000 hours total time. They usually wanted so many thousand hours in uh, turbine and, and jet aircraft, but also they liked PIC turbine time. Yes. But also they wanted to have, well, not everybody, but it was preferred that you have a type rating in the aircraft that you would be working in for the job you're applying for. Oh, okay. So what, for our audience, what is a type rating? So a type rating is required for any, for the FAA, um, any turbojet powered aircraft, an aircraft over 12,500 pounds, or an aircraft that the FAA says, okay, this airplane doesn't meet either of those two qualifications, but it's a difficult airplane to fly, you have to have a type rating for it. Don't ask me for an example of one of those. I don't know. But those are pretty much the three requirements. What are they they like in Canada? It's pretty much the same thing. Um, The way I used to think of it was um, an aircraft that's over 12,500 pounds. I believe the first one was the DC-3. So if you... You cannot fly a DC-3 by yourself, for example. It's a two-crew aircraft. Um, Obviously, the aircraft that Tim and I fly, I fly a Bombardier Challenger 605 and 650, uh, two-crew aircraft. And and what is the aircraft that you fly? I fly a Gulfstream G200. And both of the aircraft we fly are quite quite a lot faster and more sophisticated than the DC-3 that also requires (laughs) a type rating. Definitely, definitely. 
They might be able to carry more weight than us, but other than that, I think we beat it everywhere. It has better takeoff performance than us too, but other than that, I think we beat a DC-3 hands down. But I would love to fly a DC-3. Well, just a little bit north from here, uh, way up in Yellowknife uh, territories from where I live, you could definitely go do that. You could fly DC-3s all you want in full operation, airline operations up there. Uh, you could also fly a C-47 if you Ooh. wanted to. Lots of cool stuff. Uh, if you've never heard of Buffalo Airways before, uh, something definitely to check out. It was a reality TV show for a while, Tim. and yeah, It's uh, still on here. Yeah, on Ice the, the Weather Channel has it on. Yeah, yeah Ice Pilots. We still have it, and I still watch it when it's on. I, I mean, what pilot's not going to watch an airplane show, even if they've seen it before? Yeah, it's a... It's a, I, I had a friend that worked there for a while on, I should, I should say three weeks. <laughs> it, it was he didn't get along with the boss. I take it. No, no, yeah, he didn't. No. It was a pretty tough thing. So after, um, you know, after things got going for me, uh, I was a, uh, worked, uh, as a flight instructor. Then I ran a flight school. Then I went to go do, um, uh, medevac operations, air ambulance. And then from there, I went to the uh, Eastern Arctic of Canada and worked for an airline there. And I flew the ATR 42 and 72. And then I um, moved back west and flew the Boeing 737-200 in airline operations. I've heard of that. Um, yeah. Loud and smoky airplane, <laughs> Tim. Very loud. Yes. Very smoky. Um, Didn't that have the one that the uh, buckets on the thrust reversers opened up at an angle? Yes, instead absolutely. of vertically, up vertically, which was very exciting when you landed on a gravel strip because I mean it blew dust everywhere. So I bet it was a pretty cool thing. But uh, after that, I got into the corporate world, which is what we're going to be talking about in this podcast. We're going to be very focused, ladies and gentlemen, on what we do for our jobs. Uh, the type of aircraft that we fly and try and give you, as I mentioned in the very, very beginning, uh, kind of a, a secret look into what this industry is all about. And yes. uh, yeah, that's that's our goal. And we're also here, I like talking about it. I think you do too. We also like to help those that are learning to fly, that want to learn more about aviation, talking about our experiences in the past, flight training, mistakes we've made, uh, Topics like that, topics to be helpful. So we'll, we do like to focus on corporate aviation because that's what we do, but also aviation as a whole, but also those that are coming up through the ranks, things that we can do to shed light on um, subjects for them also. Yes. Well, you and I are both mentors at heart. Yes. You are, you're a former flight instructor. I'm a former flight instructor. Um, I've worked with flight schools recently here in Canada. And, um, you know, which is a, which is a cool thing to do to get back into it because you have to know all the regs, you have to know all the numbers mm -hmm. because they're going to ask you. Oh, and, yeah. uh, so, so that, that was kind of cool to get back into. But the neat thing about that is about helping and giving back. Back when we were both flight instructors, we knew the flight instruction world inside and out, but yes. you get into corporate aviation it's totally different than flight oh, instructing. Totally. You get into from flight instructing to corporate aviation, you're a, you're a little fish in a really big pond again. That's right. And to go from through all that and get thousands of hours and 15 plus years experience in corporate aviation and going back into the training environment 
it's nice having that knowledge because you have real world knowledge that you didn't have before that you had no idea about. And now you can go back and tell that to somebody else and make things a little easier for them. Absolutely. And that was actually the goal of my, my blog, which people kind of don't really do anymore. So now we've got podcasts, but um, my goal back then was about mentorship, trying to, you know, demystify what it's like to have your first job and, and, uh, and, and you and I are going to be doing that kind of stuff. And we have some pretty cool stuff coming up planned with some air traffic control um, type stuff. Maybe you could say a little bit about that, Tim. Yeah. So I've been in talking to an air traffic controller and I'm going to talk to more. One thing I'm going to do in each podcast is have an ATC minute. That won't be its actual name, but have where an air traffic controller will give a tip. They'll actually give her, they'll actually do a recording. It will be them giving a tip for a pilot on how to talk to ATC, um, things to do procedurally, just tips from air traffic controllers who see what pilots do, common mistakes, things to make flying a little bit easier. That's really cool. I mean, as, as a brand new pilot, that is so valuable. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that segment, Tim. Yeah, and I'm curious to see what they'll all say. Yeah, for sure. I'm, I'm just looking forward to that. So that's, that's something that's definitely going to happen, something that, that I am working on. I'm in contact with uh, one controller so far, but there will be more. So uh, one question I get, and you've probably had this too, people know we fly corporate jets and we're in corporate aviation, but they always ask, do you ever want to be an airline pilot? And when people ask that, it's kind of like going to a professional baseball player and saying, do you ever want to play professional basketball? Like, well, we're both <laughs> professionals. It's the same thing. Yeah. So what do you say to somebody if, if they ask you, do you ever want to be an airline pilot? Because they think, oh, airline pilot, you hear that on TV, you think, oh, that's as high as you can get. Corporate pilots aren't, aren't quite there. You can go be an airline pilot. Well, without being cocky or anything, um, that, you know, that I, I could say I've been there and done that and, you know, I, I don't want to do it again. But to be honest with you, uh, both you and I are airline transport pilots. And I don't think that people really get that. They're like, oh, well, you're a commercial pilot and, you know, whatever. But no, we're both at the highest level that we can be in our industry at airline transport pilot. Yeah, as far as, li as far as licensing, it's airline transport yeah. pilot certificate. That's as high as you can get. So once you get that and you get to this level, um, you have the choice. You can fly corporate or you can fly for the airlines. It's just you go, you do one of those paths. Some people and, like airlines. Some people have flown airlines, go to corporate and never want to go back to the airlines. Some people are the other way around. They go to the airlines and then they might retire early and go try corporate and they go straight back to the airlines. So to answer your question, I had someone say to me one time, you know, well, why, why wouldn't you want to be a corporate pilot or, or, or why do you want to get into corporate aviation? Well, I have done the airline thing, as you know, and for me, that was a lot of time away from my family. And that was a really big deal. I know I needed to do that. It was very, very important for my career to, you know, leave the province that I'm in all the way across the country and then take a three hour flight north and do all that stuff. That was very, very necessary. But 
now for me, it's all about lifestyle. It's not about the plane. It's not about the shiny tube that I'm flying or how fast it goes or anything like that. It's all about the company that I work for, the corporate flight department, which gives me a, um, you know, an excellent schedule, good pay. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm home a lot. And mm -hmm. I think you could say the same thing too. Yeah. It goes in spells, but for the most part, the most important thing to me is quality of life, work and uh, life, work and home balance. Yeah. I don't fly too much. I get to still spend a decent amount of time at home that I'm thankful for, but also something that's super important to me is job security. I've been at the same job for 18 years. Right. That's hard. That doesn't happen very often, often in corporate aviation. So that's something I'm extremely thankful for. Yes. And it might be somebody down the road that says, Oh, I want to go do this job. It's paying this, it's paying X amount of dollars. Mm -hmm. Well, that might not be a stable job. Well, there might be another job that pays a little bit less that's still a, a very good um, wage or very good salary, but that job might be more stable. Which one do you choose? I know yes. of people that have left, gone to other jobs because they paid so much. A year later, those jobs are gone. Yeah. So that's, that's the biggest tip I have for people who want to do corporate. You have to find that good work and life balance, but also if you can find a place that has um, longevity, go, f go for that by far. Yes. That's, that's going to be worth a lot in the long run because you can go to that job that pays a little bit more, but if you lose your job and you're out of work for six months or a year, which probably is unlikely in the current aviation economy, mm -hmm. but that's something that's, that's very important uh, to me. And speaking of aviation economy, Mm-hmm. This is a great time for an aircraft market update. McGill Aviation here to give you an aircraft market update. Compared year to date, there has been a 7% decrease in sales. However, we're still up 19% compared to 2019. What gives me hope is that there's 154 2023 aircraft listed on controller. To me, this shows a rebound. To learn more information just like this, you can follow me at McGillAviationInc.com. Today, we're going to be talking about our aircraft themselves and things like cabin comfort. So cabin comfort's a pretty big deal. When you're talking about an airplane that's worth, you know, millions of dollars in some cases, um, and sometimes tens of millions of dollars and maybe even more, cabin comfort is a really big deal to the client. Would you agree? Yes. It is a big deal. And that goes from having comfortable chairs, uh, things like a microwave, things you have in your home, uh, microwave, telephone, DVD players. And kids these days are probably wondering, what's a DVD player? It's the thing <laughs> you put a disc in and watch a movie from. <laughs> now they can just, we have high-speed internet on airplanes and they can just watch Netflix, passengers can, or whatever they want to do or, or work. More often than not, they're back there working. Um, things like those comforts, then also, we have a couch on the airplane that folds out into a bed. If you're doing a red-eye flight or a five, six-hour flight across the country, they want to take a nap, they can lay on the couch, pull it out, have more room. So things like that are, are worth a lot uh, for the client. Absolutely. If you think back to the days, I mean, this is, this is a way back b before us, but 
Elvis Presley and his corporate jet. And you think about the all Lockheed the... Jetstar. Yeah, the Lockheed Jetstar, which was a very loud and smoky aircraft, by the way. Um, the If you look at that airplane... And somebody just bought it recently and was going to get it. They were going to get it going, but it's uh, it's a lot of money to get it going. And he paid two hundred and fifty four thousand dollars for that thing. And actually, Ryan McGill of McGill Aviation, I'm pretty sure he did a video on that, saying if that airplane's not in one of the main, the like the books, like you have Kelly Blue Book and all those different, yeah, for different main, uh, books for cars for the value he said if it's not in that basically it's worth its weight in aluminum right and he said that guy paid way too much money if i remember correctly i don't want to be taking words out of his mouth but that that makes a lot of sense i mean that airplane was uh you know the at the time was a really incredible airplane it was a mm-hmm. four engine jet yes and in talking about cabin comforts i mean it was an aircraft that had it was completely custom um, designed by Elvis, and it had things like microwave in it. Um, it had a TV. I'm yep. sure it had a, 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 tu- a tube TV. A tube TV. And um, velvet seats. Cool. Velvet I think there seats. are velvet seats that are purple. Purple or dark red. People today would see it and think, oh my gosh, that's hideous. And it was and then, hideous back then too, but he liked it. Well, he liked it. And you know, that's the thing is any client, doesn't matter who it is. They can um, customize an airplane. Yeah, there. I, I won't mention exactly who it is, but there's a certain individual in Canada, a very big um, music performer that has a Boeing 767 of his Ooh. own. And, nice. uh, you know, I'm sure it's got some pretty cool cabin comforts in it. Um, the cabin comforts, they definitely vary. And if you're talking about an airplane, you know, that you are going to purchase from the factory, then you can choose whatever you want. You can choose the, the, the style of the cabin. Do you want a four-place seating on one side? Do you want to have a, a desk a certain area? Do you want to have, um, you know, whatever, whatever you want? What colors? And they can be pretty much off the wall. As long as they can get it approved, they can do it, and they will do it. That's, yeah, that's it, the neat thing about some of these. But pretty much anything, if you've got a problem... And you throw enough money at it, you can fix it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. So here's a question. Cabin uh-huh. comforts. If you won the lottery and could choose any cabin comfort on your corporate jet that you buy with your lottery winnings, what would it be? Oh, wow. Um, I mean, it really depends on the size of the jet. But if it was a very big airplane, um, I would probably have a beautiful bedroom. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and somebody and, to read your bedtime stories. Yeah. And maybe a shower, that kind of thing. And yeah. th- that'd be really cool. Um, it really depends if I'm trying to, uh, you know, I'm, I, I always think of these as a, the most beautiful living room that you can possibly imagine that you can entertain guests and clients and that kind of thing and be in complete relaxation. And if you couple that with a flight attendant, possibly, you know, it's pretty awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and it's neat to think that you can have all that stuff in a private airplane flying seven or eight miles above the earth, even over an ocean, and have all that and be comfortable and do work while you're sitting in an airplane. Yeah. I've seen so many different configurations, Tim. I mean, everything from the Challenger 
um, you know, the 605, 650 to globals to Gulf streams. I mean, they get pretty opulent and you know, it, it, the, the typical, um, the typical aircraft is, is fitted with a four chair club section and they'll either have a divan, um, along like sorry, a conferencing area or a divan, depending on how it's mm-hmm. set up. And then they'll have in the back of the aircraft, they may have the ability to do a sleeping accommodation, um, d- different things like telephones, lighting controls, stereo controls, fold away, climate fold controls. Away, yeah, climate controls, fold away, fold away tables. That's a hard mm-hmm. word for me to say. And the um, all the cabins, uh, the walls themselves are um, uh, acoustically uh, controlled, so that you know the, it's all about comfort. And you don't want to hear the airplane, and that's that's a real big deal about modern aircraft is the noise attenuation. You don't want to hear those big loud engines outside, right? But those big engines can almost put you to sleep. Too. Yeah, they kind of purr. They do. They they really do. So then, to get back to our airplanes, after we yeah. get out of this fantasy world of we won the lottery <laughs> and had our own BBJ, uh, we yes. can just keep dreaming for sure. Uh, so we talked about our cabin comforts, but talking about the airplane specifically here um, for the last uh, few minutes, let's talk about range, uh, performance, cruise speeds, approach speeds. So what's okay. the, what is the range of your aircraft? Uh, typical is f- uh, 4,000 nautical miles. It, now, it really depends on, you know, h- how fast are we trying to get there? Basically, right. we have... 20,000 pounds of gas that we can put on the aircraft. Um, you know, to talk about fuel numbers, we're, we're burning 3,500 pounds of gas in the first hour. So that's 58 pounds per minute. So every minute that goes by, you're burning approximately 60 pounds. In the second hour, it goes to 2,500. So it burns a little bit less. And then third hour, 2,100, and then on and on and on. So... I mean, yeah, it, and then real, real quick, you mm-hmm. say gas. I we say gas too. We all call it gas, but it's jet fuel. It's not gasoline like in a car. It's it's right. jet fuel. We're talking jet, jet A one. Yeah, and down here we have jet A. The difference, I think, jet A to jet A one is uh, different. Jet A, I think, I believe jet A one has the icing inhibitors in it, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it's good to like minus 50, something like that. I can't, I, I can't remember the exact number, but. Yeah, uh, and we can run either. We can do Jet A or Jet A1. The difference is Jet A is 6.7 pounds per gallon. Jet A1 is 6.8. That's the only difference. And there's different a different temperature range between the two. Um, but usually it's not, we don't operate in an environment that's cold enough to where it really matters. You do more than we do because it's, so much colder up there but um, yeah i mean and that and that's something that we'll talk about in future episodes the coldness and what we call isa temperature has mm-hmm. a lot to do with how we choose our altitudes so we right, can how well they're playing tires yeah ab- absolutely yeah um so there's going to be a number that when you buy an airplane it's going to be published as you know this airplane does a certain amount of range so I can't tell you, you know, I'm going to be able to fly from X location to Hawaii every single time because there's winds and those kind of things, right? Yeah, winds aloft, temperatures, departure runway length, things like that. 
things things dramatically change. Now, if you look at differences between, and we'll talk about this in the future, um, you know, the Challenger aircraft. I mean, it it became from the Challenger 600 all the way to the 650. There's been many many changes, but most of them have to do with fuel capacity and the type of engines that we have. Um, the engines that I have on on an airplane are General Electric CF34-3B engines, which are um, pretty big, very, very similar to what's on the A10 Warthog aircraft. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, they're not exactly the same. If you look at the number, the TF34 is what's on the A10, and we have the CF34, and that's about a 9,200-pound class thrust engine, so pretty big. Yeah, our uh, engines are a little smaller. Uh, we have Pratt & Whitney 306As, and those engines put out 6,040 pounds of thrust, so a little bit smaller, but the airplane weighs a little bit less. And pretty, a lot of these jets, when you look at the thrust-to-weight ratio, they're all very similar, and we pretty much have very similar cruise speeds. We'll cruise at Mach 0.8, uh, MMO or maximum Mach operating speed is 0.85 Mach, so that's 85% of the speed of sound. Um, and I'm guessing your airplane's exactly right there with the same that. Thing. It's exactly yeah. the same thing. We cru- so, normal cruise speed is 80. Yeah, that's what we do. 80, we can go faster. We can stay down around 37 and do 82, but the fuel burn goes up. We can stay at 38 to 40, depending on how heavy we are. We can't always go straight to 38, 39, or 40 um, until we burn off some fuel. But for the most part, we're cruising around uh, 465 knots true airspeed. And the fuel burn, the first hour is 2,500 pounds. The second hour is right around 2,000. Then from there, it goes down to 19 and 1,800. We can get about seven hours worth of um, endurance on the airplane. And that'll take us about 3,400 nautical miles. But again, that's being able to take off under ideal conditions where you can take maximum fuel to actually go that far. And then winds aloft, if you have a strong headwind, obviously that range is going to be reduced. But um, then approach speeds. So mm-hmm. approach, approach speeds obviously doesn't have cruise performance after you come down to land. Light airplane has slower approach speeds. But my airplane that I fly has pretty fast approach speeds. Uh, when we're at max landing weight, which is 30,000 pounds, our rest speed's 140. Wow. What is yours? Uh, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's much slower because ours is fast. It, it is definitely slower, which is surprising because if you look at our wing, and we'll talk about this in the future, the wing, our, our Challenger wing, n- has not changed from way back in the 1970s when the Challenger came out. And we'll talk about development of that in future episodes. But Well, and real quick, our wing mm-hmm. didn't change either from the Astra. So the wing uh, on our airplane is actually the IAI or is Israel Aircraft Company, the Astra. It's the same wing. It's five feet longer on each side. And the G200 wing has Kruger uh, flaps. So it has a flap on the inboard section of the wing that comes down. I believe the angle is 135 degrees to help give that wing a little bit better performance. So they actually just pretty much use the wing off of another airplane. It was a great wing on the Astra. But on the G200, not so much. We have really long takeoff distances when we're heavy and it's hot. I mean, it's just crazy, like 8,000 feet. Wow. So, but yeah, and our, some, sometimes our, longer, but without getting into books, um, 
I can't really cite more numbers, but the average takeoff distance for us at normal weights is five, uh, like usually 5,000 feet. Okay. Um, ours is, is, is pretty similar to, to what you have there. Um, it's everything's going to change depending on how much fuel we have on board, how many passengers we have on board, uh, where we're taking off from as far as temperature goes, the pressure altitude, so many different factors. And we have some really incredible, um, you know, technology now that helps us out with all of that kind of stuff. So our wing is, you know, really old. We do not have leading edge slats on our, on our we do. aircraft. We have those too. And so we have, uh, you know, the, a super critical wing, which we'll talk about in the future. And, and it's just, a, a, you know, the wing has been around for a long, long time. And so our approach speeds are, you know, typically around 130 knots, uh, something, something like that. Um, maybe, maybe less, 120, 124. Yeah, we can get down that like slow that. when we're light. Um, but the average gamut of approach speeds for us, 120 probably 122 140 122 to 140 but talking okay. about these speeds performance mm -hmm. all this stuff what do you think is easier to fly a ga airplane like a 172 or one of these private jets a private jet is is a very easy airplane to fly um i agree and i it, i asked that because i went up in a 172 and trying to land a 172 in a crosswind or just without the wind it, it was it's so much easier to land a private jet you're coming in faster you're heavier the wind's going to affect you a little bit less but when that thing's going in a certain direction it wants to keep going in that direction i feel like the airplane settles down they don't float um, if you're on speed and i find in that respect that they're easier to fly uh, they do have much better performance which helps make it easier to fly they can be more difficult when you're transitioning from a propeller airplane to a jet because when you're taking off, you're going to be rotating at a speed that's higher or close to the, the never exceed speed of a propeller-driven airplane. Mm -hmm. And exactly. you can even overspeed the airplane during climb, and things just happen so fast, but you get used to that pretty darn quick. I would say within a few months of flying the airplane, it, it gets harder each time you fly it's less and less likely that you're going to get behind the airplane. It still happens. Not, not really anymore, but if you're paying attention, it's just, it, it's not hard to fly a private jet. I mean, just no. the automation makes it easier, but you just get used to it. But also you're flying the same airplane every single time you fly and you're flying it often. Yeah. I mean, our airplane, um, I will say it is the most challenging, no pun intended. That's why um, they call it the Challenger. Yeah, exactly. Challenge all the pilots to fly it, right? Yeah, it's called the Challenger. It's got to be. It's challenging. So our this the Challenger 605 and the 650, if you look at the length of it, which is 68 feet, 5 inches, wingspan 64 and 4 inches. Did you inches. write that down or did you really memorize that? I am looking at a cheat sheet. <laughs> I knew it because no pilot knows those numbers. I normally you know round why? them up. I round them up. I don't know them either because guess what? It's in a book that's required to be in the airplane. So yeah. I don't need to know those. But but if you think about the number I just gave you, Tim, the thing is, is that we're kind of a boxy airplane. Mm -hmm. So we're, you know, we're only four feet difference between the span and the length. 
and the, our height is 20 feet. So our airplane really likes to weather cock. So when we are coming in for an approach, um, you know, we have to be very, very careful about how much crosswind we have with this airplane. And very much so if we are intending to use thrust reversers. Mm -hmm. um, Same with us. It, and there's it, new restrictions on that. If there's crosswinds over a certain amounts, you can't use thrust reversers. The thing is, is our airplane has a, a lot of it is like suggested. It'll be like, um, you shouldn't really do anything more than this number, like say 20, a 20 knot direct crosswind. Um, that's probably a bit too much. Um, there are limitations, certainly on tailwinds, but when you're talking crosswinds, a lot of it has to do with pilot technique. Um, you know, how quickly you're going to get the aircraft down on the ground, recentered, you know, basically when you're going to kick the rudder to straighten the aircraft, is that going to be done at 10 feet, five mm. feet? What is the number? Yeah. Because if you really, really got a big wind coming at you, we have a, a big boxy aircraft and it's going to catch the wind and it could catch the pilot very very quickly so our technique is to get it onto the ground very quickly deploy the spoilers and push hard on the control column forward and then plant the nose and then exactly planting that nose which gets more braking action happening and then getting that aileron into the wind um, comparing it to other aircraft that i've flown like say the falcon 900 and the Hawker, um, it is more challenging to fly than those aircraft. So the Challenger is a little challenging, um, but for certain things, and we'll, we'll talk about, um, I guess with the approach speeds, it's the most um, different approach that I've flown in any other airplane. When you go from flaps 30 to flaps 45, we have a very distinctive nose down pitch that occurs. And when you when you have a pilot that's coming from another airplane to our airplane, it's one of the most noticeable things you're going to see. The nose pitches way down. If you've ever been on a Challenger, sorry, a CRJ 200 flying before, uh, Canada Regional Jet 200, in that last stages of the approach, you'll notice that the nose pitches down quite a bit. Compared to say a 737 or other aircraft, the nose is up in the air ours is not it's down at the ground which causes a very different flaring technique with our aircraft you really don't flare very much it's a very I've heard very about that from crj pilots yeah it's almost like a small little baby check that you make like and when i say check it's just just kind of a small pullback in the controls uh it's definitely a technique something you have to learn and uh you can't really learn that in the sim too well you really have to learn that online yeah, sims help, but it's still different than a real airplane. And you, you're right, though. You get in the real airplane, and that's where you really learn. Yes. But as we wrap up on time here, uh, we went just a tiny bit long, but that's okay because I like talking about airplanes a little bit extra. Is there anything you want to add? No, I, I just want to say that we've got some exciting stuff coming up. We're going to talk a lot about the uh, Bombardier Challenger. Uh, which was, well, I'll leave this kind of as a, a thing for the next one, is that originally it was a Learjet concept, and we'll talk about all about that in the future. Uh, we're going to talk about um, more about the corporate world and the kind of the closed door stuff that you never hear about on this podcast. Well, that was awesome. 
That was awesome, Tim. And, uh, you know, we are going to have a, a logbook story, basically story time in the future coming up. And, How many logbooks um, do you have? I have uh, probably five. I'm on four. I've got one small one from when I learned, and then I started getting those big, thick ones, and I've got three of the big, thick ones. I think I'm on... And that one's three-fourths of the way filled up, but I'm I'm at least four logbooks. I now so, use mostly... Well, I should say almost 100% of the time now is I use a program called Log10, and uh, which is works really, really well with... Uh, uh, Apple iOS devices and that kind of thing. You can uh, enter all your data in there, and I have it basically up to, up to date from all of the airline flying that that I did. But prior to that, everything is all in paper logbooks. Yeah, my stuff is still all in paper. Over eight thousand hours of time, all paper. Very cool. So that's all we have for now. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Corporate Pilot Guys podcast. The Corporate Pilot Guys can be contacted via SpeakPipe or email at thecorporatepilotguyspodcast at gmail.com. Please share your comments, show ideas, or questions 